Well, greetings to all of you. We've come to the end of another festival season, gone through the whole cycle of all seven holy days, all seven festivals. And we can be thankful that God has made a way for many of us to be able to meet together to keep this feast under difficult circumstances. Some of you kept the feast at home as best you could, uh, partly because of shutdowns of governments and regulations that do not allow halls to open up or to open up in sufficient numbers to be uh, worthwhile of, of getting to them. Uh, some have not attended the feast for a variety of other reasons, and we're not here to judge you. But whatever the case, this must never become the norm. This is an exception And we have to resist the idea that, well, I kept it at home one year, so therefore I'll keep it at home from here on out. That would be a wrong approach to it, and we must not fall into that trap. However, there are examples in Scripture that show there are exceptions to the norm. And I'd like to go through one of them right now, and that's found in the book of 1 Kings. And we're going to begin in the 17th chapter. And verse 1 of 1 Kings 17, it says, Elijah the Tishbite of the inhabitants of Gilead said to Ahab, that's the king, As the Lord God of Israel lives before whom I stand, there shall not be dew nor rain these years except at my word. Now, dew or rain. The dew provides about two inches in uh, moisture to the land there a very rocky land, and the moisture condenses out of the air onto the rocks, drips into the ground. So that's very important for the uh, crops and the grasses to grow there. He says, Then the word of the Lord came to him, saying, Get away from here and turn eastward and hide by the brook Chirath, Chirath, which uh, flows into the Jordan. So Elijah was told to flee from that area, flee from the presence of Ahab and get to this location where he would hide out. And it will will be that uh, you shall drink from the brook, and I have commanded the ravens to feed you there. And sometimes people wonder, well, wait a minute, a raven is an unclean bird, and it's going to bring food. And where is it going to get the food? Well, God was in control. He took care of uh, everything there, and it was appropriate. God provided food by the ravens for Elijah while he camped out by that brook. So he went and did according to the word of the Lord, for he went and stayed by the brook Kirith, which flows into the Jordan. And the ravens brought him bread and meat in the morning, and bread and meat in the evening, and he drank from the brook. And it happened, verse 7, after a while that the brook dried up, because there had been no rain in the land. So it took a little while for this to happen. It didn't just happen overnight as soon as he got there. He was there for a period of time. We really don't know exactly how long he was there. But then he was commanded to go someplace else, and he went up to a place called Zarephath, uh, verse 9, uh, which belongs to Sidon. This is up in the area that we would call Lebanon today. It was north of Tyre, outside of the confines of Ahab's immediate Uh, jurisdiction. And yet we'll see that Ahab really was going after Elijah no matter where he he fled to. But he went there and it was so that this uh, woman, this widow there of Zarephath, uh, went away and did according to the word of Elijah and she 
and he and her household ate for many days. There was a, a miracle that was performed there where the bread and the oil did not uh, diminish or go away until uh, the famine was over. And the bin of flour was not used up, nor the jar of oil run dry. Verse 16, according to the word of the Lord, which he spoke by Elijah. So we see that miracle that took place there. And he's staying there in this location. And then in chapter 18, it came to pass, verse 1, after many days, that the word of the Lord came to Elijah in the third year, saying, Go present yourself to Ahab, and I will send rain on the earth. Now, this is a very famous story. I know that all of you are familiar with it, unless you're just brand new or uh, younger and may not have heard it very often. But it's, a, it's an incredible story of how Elijah confronted Ahab and the prophets of Baal and the prophets of the Asherah or prophetesses. But we find here that Ahab and his servant Obadiah decided to go, or Ahab decided that they should go in two separate directions to find food for the horses and for the cattle, hoping to save them because the drought had been very severe. And so in verse 7, suddenly Elijah met him, and he recognized him. Notice, he recognized Elijah. In other words, Elijah was not an unknown figure, at least among some of the, the leaders of the nation, and no doubt many of the other people of the nation would have known who he was. We, we break into this story when all this happened, and we don't know all the things that went before, but Elijah didn't just come out of nowhere. Uh, he obviously was a servant of God before that, and apparently was known, but we only see the part of it where uh, it, it's a conf- confrontation here with with uh, Ahab. And so we don't know all that went before, but you know in the Old West, in the United States here, uh, a lot of our Western movies, if you've watched any American Western movies, they'll have a, a, a poster with somebody's picture on it, and it would say, Wanted, Dead or Alive. And that meant that whoever you were, if you could find that person where you had to bring him in, alive or dead, bring him in because we want him. Now, they didn't have printing presses back then in Elijah's day, but they may have had drawings. They may have had descriptions that would be printed some places. We don't know all those things, but what we do know is that Obadiah recognized him and they were searching for him, so other people had to have some idea as to who he was. So Obadiah then says, uh, he says, uh, he fell on his face and he says, Is that you, my Lord Elijah? And he answered him, It is I. Go tell your master Elijah is here. So tell him you found him. And this is a frightening thing for Obadiah. He said, Well, how have I sinned that you are delivering your servant into the hand of Ahab to kill me? In other words, if I leave, and as it goes on to explain, and I bring him back and you're not here, He's going to wonder why I didn't bring you back or why didn't I kill you? Why didn't I bring you back dead or alive? So that was his his fear there. And then he shows that he had hidden some servants of God in caves, a hundred of them, 50 in one cave, 50 in another, and had fed them. It was a very dangerous thing for Obadiah to have done during that time, but that's what he did. And so he's saying, "Why, why are you trying to kill me? And Elijah then goes on to show that uh, he he was uh, 
going to show himself to Ahab that day. Now, there are some points we could recognize here. First of all, Obadiah recognized him, so Elijah was not an unknown figure. And then he goes on to say that there, there's no nation where uh, we haven't looked for you. Notice verse 10, As the Lord your God lives, there's no nation or kingdom where my master has not sent someone to hunt for you. And when they said he is not here, he took an oath from the kingdom or nation that they should not that they could not find you. So there were individuals who were out looking for him as well in various other nations. Apparently, this would have been a very good public relations thing if they would have found Elijah and reported it to Ahab and, of course, even arrested him and sent him back there. So it shows us how desperate the situation was. How I say desperate. It wasn't desperate because it was in God's hands, but nevertheless how serious a matter it was with Ahab and uh, the, the people that were supporting Ahab at that time. Now, over in James, the fifth chapter, and verse 17, I won't take time to turn over there, but it shows that the drought lasted for three and a half years. So what can we learn from this? Well, when he was by the brook where the water was, we don't know if he was dwelling in a cave or under a tent, or out in the open. We, we don't know. We don't know what he did all day long. But the sense is that nobody else knew that he was there because somebody else could have brought food to him if he were known to be there and they were favorable toward him. They surely would have. But God used ravens to bring food to him. The sense is, that the total sense of this is he was by himself. Maybe he had a servant there, maybe he didn't, but essentially he was by himself. There's a lot that we don't know, but there are certain things that we can know fairly certainly. And so we have to ask the question, what did he do on the Sabbath day, every Sabbath? He obviously would have been obeying God. That's why he was a servant of God. So he would have kept the Sabbath, but in this particular case, he would have kept it by himself. What about the holy days, the feast days? He certainly wouldn't be going down to Jerusalem in this particular case. We know that Jesus did under the threat of death. But we also know that Jesus stayed away from Judea, except for those feasts, uh, because of the, the threat that was over his life. So there's a time when God expects us to be very careful. And, of course, Jesus was going on that occasion because he knew that that was going to be the time when, you know, when, uh, well, not that Feast of Tabernacles, but uh, later on, uh, his disciples knew that it was dangerous to go there, and he went because there was a reason for it. And that was going to be his last journey during the Passover that year. But Elijah was to hide out by the brook, and so he must have been keeping the Sabbath by himself, not going to synagogue or someplace like that. Um, we know that when he was staying with the widow lady, again, because Ahab was taking oaths of all the different kingdoms around that he would not be out in the open. He would Again, he would not have gone to Jerusalem to keep the feast. In fact, probably a lot of people would not go to Jerusalem at that time because Ahab was a worshiper of Baal. And his wife was, uh, was the one that stirred him up to all those things. So it was during a very difficult time in Israel. And we'll get to a little bit more of that in just a moment here. But he would not have assembled beyond a household where he was uh, except for 
with those that were in the household for the feast or the Sabbath days. It was more of an in-home service if they even had a service, and we don't know how they would have conducted or what was done. We don't know too much about this woman, how much of a believer she was. She seemed to be somewhat of a believer, uh, and, and she's spoken of very positively in the New Testament. But there was a time where she said, well, now I know that you are a servant of God. So, at any rate, we, we don't see that any of them traveled any place to keep the feast that year or the years that they were, that Elijah was out there for three and a half years. We also know that Elijah felt pretty lonely, that there weren't a lot of believers at that time. In the 19th chapter, the next chapter over, uh, we read in verse 13 where he has fled from Jezebel, all the way down to the southern part of of Israel or Judah. And he's hiding out in a cave, and here's a still small voice. And in verse 13, it so it was, when Elijah heard it, that he wrapped his face in the mantle and went out and stood at the entrance of the cave. And suddenly a voice came to him and said, What are you doing here, Elijah? What are you doing here? You know, faith isn't always level. Sometimes we have more faith than other times. And in the case of Elijah, he had great faith. For three and a half years, it didn't rain on the earth. He called fire down from heaven that consumed a wet sacrifice. He hacked apart 400 prophets of Baal. And yet Jezebel says, I'm going to have your hide by this time tomorrow night. And he ran all the way to the southern part of the, the country and on down even further. And He's hiding out in a cave. And he says, what are you doing here, Elijah? And he said, I have been very zealous, verse 14, for the eternal God of hosts, because the children of Israel have forsaken your covenant, torn down your altars, and killed your prophets with the sword. I alone am left, and they seek to take my life. He felt pretty lonely, didn't he? He thought he was the only one left that was still obeying God. And yet we read a little bit later there, down in verse 18, where God said, Yet I have reserved 7,000 in Israel, all whose knees have not bowed to Baal, and every mouth that has not kissed him. So there were 7,000 people that God had reserved. Now the question is, where were those 7,000 people during that time? If there had been 7,000 people meeting together, or even 700 Elijah probably would have known about it. Apparently, these were people like Elijah, hiding out in small groups here and there, trying to keep quiet about what they truly believed, but nevertheless obeying God as best they could under the circumstances. You know, it's interesting that in the New Testament, in 1 Corinthians, the second chapter, I'm sorry, seventh chapter, 1 Corinthians 7, The Apostle Paul is dealing with a situation uh, that had to do with marriage and and uh, so forth. And at, at some point toward the end of the letter, I think, again, we should be familiar with this passage of Scripture in general. But in verse 26, he says, I suppose, therefore, this is the Apostle Paul. I suppose, therefore, that this is good because of the present distress that it's good for a man to remain as he is. 
And he says, you know, your bound wife don't seek to be loose. But he's saying here, as we read through here, that he's saying that if you can avoid getting married, if it isn't something that is so pressuring you to, to get married, that maybe it's better that you not. But more importantly, God says it's not good for a man to be alone. And so he wants us to marry. He wants us to have children. And yet the Apostle Paul and God inspired this to be written, inspired this to be recorded. And so God puts his stamp of approval on it. For the present distress, you need to perhaps override another uh, principle of God. Now, we need to be very careful about things like that, and we shouldn't just go off on our own. But it it does show that there are exceptions, that there are times of distress that are temporary when it is best to do something different than the norm. So hiding out was the exception and is the exception. And as Jonathan McNair often reminds us, we should not make the rule by the exception. And we must not make this rule or this prerogative uh, to be the norm. The norm is for us to meet together face-to-face in person. The norm is to come together away from our homes and to keep the Feast of Tabernacles. And I understand that this is going to be difficult for some people, but at some point, at some point, brethren, we have to come out of our basements. We have to come out and we have to worship God. Now, we're not pressuring people with uh, a lot of uh, comorbidities, as they say, or underlying conditions. While the uh, pandemic is, is very, very active and maybe in your area, and we can't have faith for you. God says that, you know, do we have faith? Have it to ourselves. But we have to understand that forsaking the assembling of ourselves together. Now, I've defended the fact that sometimes we have to assemble through electronic media with a live stream because we are obedient to the laws of the land. And somebody might say, well, we just do it anyway. Well, some parts of this world, you do that and you're going to end up in a prison for a long time and it's not going to be very pleasant, and you're not going to be able to keep the Sabbath there, and you're not going to be able to do a lot of things. Now, I know that we, many of us may go to prison before it's over, but let's make sure we understand the hill we're dying on. Uh, going to prison may make us feel good, but we won't get anything out of the Feast of Tabernacles in a situation like that. Not all governments are like the United States or Canada or Britain or some other places. And so we we have to understand these things. We need to be balanced on this. We need to understand all the scriptures and not take one scripture and go running with it apart from the rest of them. But our tradition is to meet in person. And during this last great day, our tradition is to have two services. Uh, We give the specific meaning of the day in one sermon. And scriptures such as Revelation, the 20th chapter, verses 5 and 6, and verses 11 to 13, where it speaks of the rest of the dead coming up after the thousand years are finished. We usually cover that in the meaning of the the day. We also cover Ezekiel, the 37th chapter, which talks about the valley of dry bones. Sometimes the passages in the book of Matthew were Matthew 10, 11, and 12, those three chapters in a row, talk about a judgment to come. 
And so it talks about the people of Sodom, uh, the people of Sidon and other places that had they seen the miracles that were performed by Jesus in his day, they would have repented long ago. But you can read those passages, and maybe that was given this morning in the sermon. But uh, if you want to write them down, Matthew 10, verse 15. That's Matthew 10, 15. Then Matthew 11, verses 21 to 24. And Matthew 12, verses 41 through 42. And if you didn't get those, just read Matthew 10, 11, and 12, and you'll see that and maybe mark that in your Bible so that you can find those. But clearly it's talking about a judgment to come when God is going to judge all people on this earth. And there are numerous other scriptures that could be referred to in the book of Romans. There are several chapters that oftentimes are covered during this last great day. But the meaning of this day should have been given to you this morning. So I'm not going to focus on that aspect of it, just showing the meaning of it. I love to do so. In fact, most of the time that I've been in the ministry, I've given the meaning of the day, volunteered to do so because I I love the meaning of this last great day. It is so encouraging, so exciting. It's so exciting to know that my parents, who are decent people as humans go, but did not know God in any way, shape, or form, Well, God, as they understood God, but they weren't religious people, you might say. But to know that they're going to come up in a resurrection at the end of this age, and to know that people in faraway places on this earth who never had an opportunity are going to know God. You know, when you live in a multicultural area, as we did when we lived in uh, Canada for 13 and a half years, You get to know people of different cultures, different races, different nationalities. We had people that were from the Middle East, uh, people from, well, there was a family that was uh, from uh, Vietnam, escaped from Vietnam. We had people from India, Pakistan, uh, from Germany. And a lot of people in the, that's, that's just our neighbors, plus all those in the church. And you realize that God has made beautiful people everywhere. And even those that don't understand right now are, are no different than us in terms of the potential that they have. What a wonderful meaning that we have during this Feast of Tabernacles. So our tradition is to give a sermon on that subject, and I hope that you got a good one this morning. Uh, but today... Uh, I asked the, the other speakers to do that because I would speak on a different subject. So what I'm going to do is, in the time remaining here is focus on something deeply rooted in the meaning of this day. God's impartial love for all people everywhere. God's impartial love for all people everywhere. So the title of this sermon, if you are a title person, is God's impartial love for mankind. God's impartial love for mankind. God's character, His personality, His way is the way of love. And as we've explained so many times, love is not an emotion. Emotion may be connected with love, but love is not defined by emotion. There are a lot of people that have a lot of emotion and very little love or none at all. 
But love is an outgoing concern for others. And again, there can be emotion that accompanies love, but it is an outgoing concern for others. In Matthew, the 22nd chapter, as you're turning over there, I'll just reference 1 John 4, verses 8 and 16. 1 John 4, 6 and 18. Um, tell us, God is love. Just straight out, God is love. But here in Matthew, the 22nd chapter, and in verse 36, it says there was this lawyer that came to him with a question. He said, Teacher, which is the great commandment of the law? And Jesus said to him, You shall love the eternal your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. Now, that's a taller order than most of us realize on a day-to-day basis. But that's what God expects of us, to love Him with all of our heart, all of our being. Everything about us should be about God. As we go through the day, we think about Him. We, we are thankful for certain things. We marvel and, and look at the things that He's created and we, we wonder over them. Whether it be a lizard or a hummingbird, which I know not every place has hummingbirds, but they're really, really tiny little birds. Or bees. We're seeing some bees this year, honeybees. And they're competing with the hummingbirds for the at the hummingbird feeders. Uh, it's, it's quite a battle to watch there. And then, of course, the hummingbirds fight amongst themselves as to whose territory it is. So it's, it's quite interesting. But lizards of different stripes and kinds, amazing creatures. And, and that's just, I'm not even scratching the surface of God's creation. But do we go through this world marveling over God's creation and His love for mankind and creating such variety so many different kinds of creatures on this earth. We have these, I think they call them skinks, but they're a little lizard and kind of a gray lizard, and they have stripes on them. Then we have some that are just all green. And they have scientific names, but we just call them the green lizards or the gray lizards. And uh, we, we enjoy watching them as they scamper across the ground, and sometimes they stay close by. And I saw a snake here a while back, a black snake all my life. I'd, I'd never seen a black snake except in Australia, and that's a poisonous snake. But here in the United States, a black snake is a good snake. It gets mice and bugs and rats and different things like that. I'd never seen one, and what a beautiful snake. I know that's hard for some people to believe, but it was jet black. It was shiny black like a black automobile. I'd never seen any snake like that, and it was just an absolutely beautiful snake, except it was running so fast it was afraid of me. And I can only see him for a short period of time. But what a beautiful, you know, part of God's creation. I thank God for letting me see that beautiful snake. And, and I hope that we have that love for God. But it says here that uh, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and soul and so forth. And then it goes on to say, and the second is like it, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments hang all the law and the prophets. This is what God wants for you and me to learn. He wants to know, will we put him first? Do we love him above all else? And will we love our fellow man? That's what God needs to know. Because that is God's character. That's what he is. He has outgoing concern. 
And if we're going to be in his family, we have to share that quality, that trait, that very character that we must become exactly what he is in that way. Back in the Old Testament, in the book of Exodus, the 34th chapter, Moses wanted to uh, see God. He wanted to learn more about God. And in the 34th chapter, God declares his name. Here in Exodus, the 34th chapter, and verse 5, it says, Then the Eternal ascended in the cloud and stood with him there and proclaimed the name of the Lord. You know, people get all hung up about uh, how you pronounce the name or saying the exact name that uh, that that uh, the tetragrammaton, that's the four letters, Y-H-V-H or Y-H-W-H, uh, how to pronounce it, how to spell it. Some people say Jehovah, which we know that's not right, but Yahweh or Yahweh or, or different pronunciations people have. But here is what the name of the Lord is. It says, The Lord passed before him and proclaimed the eternal. And that's what Mr. Armstrong used to substitute for where it says Lord, where it's in all capital letters, because that's really the meaning of it, the sense of it. The eternal, the eternal God, merciful and gracious. This is his name. This is his character. Merciful and gracious, long-suffering and abounding in goodness and truth. Keeping mercy for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression. Very forgiving. Transgression and sin. By no means cheering, uh, clearing the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers upon the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generation. So there's a penalty when people violate his law. But the emphasis here is on keeping mercy to thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgressions and sin, and so forth. This is his character. This is his outgoing concern. And aren't we thankful that he forgives our sins? You know, where would we be if we didn't have that forgiveness? We can't pay the penalty for our past sins. That does nothing for us. But we can have our sins forgiven through the blood of Jesus Christ. And we're very thankful for that. And we think we see that in the Passover. We see that in the Day of Atonement where you have the two goats. One represents Christ and the other one Azazel. Now, God's love is impartial. God does not show love with partiality. Notice Acts, the 10th chapter, where... We read of Peter's vision, and Peter has now met with Cornelius and his family, and they're talking there, and he realizes that this sheet that was let down was about not calling any man common or unclean, not animals, but any man common or unclean. And then in verse 34, it says, Then Peter opened his mouth and said, In truth, in truth, I perceive that God shows no partiality. But in every nation, whoever fears him and works righteousness is accepted by him. Wherever people are willing to obey God, whatever the nation, whatever the race, whatever the, the ethnicity that it might be, 
God shows no partiality. And, you know, this is really what this day has a lot to do with, is that God is going to give everybody a fair chance. Now, in all things, you have to have leaders and you have to have others that are followers or uh, being taught by the leaders and so forth. So every reward is not the same. You know, and here in the United States, we have part of our uh, uh, Declaration of Independence and Constitution that all men were created equal. It's evident that all men were created equal. But as we had even at one of the summer camps or the summer camp this last year in Texas, one of the men pointed out that that doesn't mean that we all have the same proclivities, the same talents. You know, there are people with great musical talent. I don't happen to be one of them. There are people with great artistic talent. I don't fall in that category as well. There are people that are built like, you know, a rock, strong, and able to, you know, pick up large objects and everything. I don't happen to be one of those. I'm more of a greyhound. And even there, uh, I don't have the endurance that a lot of people have. And, and neither do you have all these characteristics. Some people are so bright, so brilliant, that it just amazes me. They have a, a television program that sometimes used to be halfway decent. Sometimes it gets a little bit off color, but whose line is it anyway? It's improvisation. And they have four main regulars there. And... Uh, one fellow, I, I, I knew his name about 30 seconds ago. Uh, anyway, he's a fellow that they'll give him a, a job like secretary, and uh, then they'll play music that is in, say, Western style or a polka, and he has to make up words to it and talk about a secretary and maybe a, a name of someone that's thrown out there. And it's just amazing how... How brilliant that mind is. How quick his mind is, as well as the other fellows. And they, they're just so quick. Most of us are not that way. We'd like to be funny. We'd like to be able to do a lot of things, but we don't have that kind of quickness. God didn't make every one of us exactly the same. He made us with different talents. But if we can develop the talents that he's given to us, everybody can do something well. I don't know what it is in every case, but there's something... God didn't make us without anything. There are people who are autistic, and yet they have incredible ability. There's one, they showed this uh, young fellow on a basketball team, and he was kind of the water boy. He, he took care of everybody else, but he came out to practice. And he got out there at the last game of the year, and they put him out there, and, and he had all these, uh, something like seven three-point shots in a row. That's from long distance. And everybody just amazed and cheering. But here's a fellow who's autistic. But sometimes autistic people, once they get into a groove, they're able to stay there. Everybody has some value and some worth. And we need to be like God and appreciate that and understand that God did make us all different. So we may not all be equal in terms of talent or ability and that sort of thing, but we're equal in the eyes of God. We are human beings with the potential to become his sons and his daughters. Second Chronicles, the 19th chapter, and we will begin in verse 5. It says, Then he set judges in the land. This is Jehoshaphat. And all the fortified cities of Judah, city by city, 
and said, verse 6, to the judges. This was the command that he gave to them. Take heed that what you are doing, uh, for you do not judge for man, but for the eternal. So understand that your judgment is not your own. It is for the eternal. So take it very seriously. Who is with you in the judgment. He will guide you in the judgment if you seek his guidance. Now therefore, verse 7, let the fear of the eternal be upon you. Have a respect, a fear for God. Take care and do it, for there is no iniquity with the eternal our God. There is no sin. There is no iniquity with God. No partiality nor taking of bribes. So don't allow yourself to be bribed into doing something that you shouldn't do. Let's go over to Romans, the ninth chapter, and verse 13. Romans 9 and verse 13. Because this is a question that people ask sometimes. Well, if he doesn't show partiality, what about Esau? What about Pharaoh? Didn't he show partiality there? Didn't God select certain individuals and not other individuals? Well, he selected them for specific jobs to do. Here in Romans, the ninth chapter, verse 13, as it is written, Jacob I have loved, but Esau have I hated. Now, when we understand the term hated, and you can compare this with the New Testament expression and the Old Testament expression, and remember when it says that Leah was uh, that, that Rachel was loved more than Leah says when she was hated, but then it falls up and says when Rachel was loved more than. It's a matter of comparison. And the word as we take it today is very different from the way that it was used in the original language. And of course, it wasn't the word H-A-T-R-E-D uh, or H-A-T-E. It was, it was a, you know, a Hebrew or a, a Greek term. But the, the meaning of it was different than the way that we use it says, what shall we say then? So here's his answer to it. Is there unrighteousness with God? Is God unrighteous? Certainly not. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whomever I will have mercy, and I will have compassion on whomever I will have compassion. So then it is not of him who wills, nor of him who runs, but of God who shows mercy. Verse 17, for the scripture says to Pharaoh, even for this same purpose I have raised you up, that I might show my power in you and that my name might be declared in all the earth. So there's a greater purpose for this than just one person. But we'll see that God hasn't necessarily forsaken Pharaoh. We, we don't know on that. But this day may be the time for Pharaoh. This day may be the time for Esau. They may not have been really called at that time. But God knew weaknesses they would have and he used them says, therefore, he has, verse 18, has mercy on whom he wills, and whom he wills he hardens. Now, how did God harden Pharaoh's heart? When you go back there to the book of Exodus, God withdrew the pressure. He just took the pressure off of Pharaoh, and Pharaoh walked right into the trap. He did what God knew he would do, and the pressure was off. He says, you will say to me then, why does he find fault for who has resisted his will? Verse 20, but indeed, O man, who are you to reply against God? Will the thing formed say to him who formed it, Why have you made me like this? Does not the potter have power over the clay from the same lump to make one vessel for honor and another for dishonor? 
What if God, wanting to show His wrath and to make His power known, endured with much suffering the vessels of wrath? He had to endure them as well. He, he called people for this job that would certainly fit the qualifications of it because they're way. Some people think about the one who uh, betrayed Jesus, Judas. Well, God or Christ knew who He was calling before He called Him. And Judas was a thief. There was a certain character flaw there that God used with that individual. And he wasn't close to Christ as he should have been. He got easily offended and Satan took over with him. It says the vessels of wrath prepared for destruction and that he might make known the riches of his glory on the vessels of mercy which he had prepared beforehand for glory. Even us whom he called, not of the Jews only, but also of the Gentiles. So God had a plan, He had a purpose, and He uses individuals for His eternal purpose. And who are we to question that? But the Scriptures say that He doesn't have partiality. In other words, nobody's going to lose salvation where they've never had a chance. God is going to give every human being who's ever lived a chance, a first chance, not a second chance. Now, whether they've had it already in this life, I don't know. Or whether they will come up, will Pharaoh come up? Or did Pharaoh so resist God's will, his spirit at that time, that he's had his chance? We don't know. But we trust that God is fair in all things and impartial. And he knew the Pharaoh to to work with at that time. So let us not forget what this day pictures, that there is coming a time of judgment. And look what he says about the people of Sodom. And when you look at how corrupt morally corrupt that city was and yet it says in the judgment it's going to be easier for them than some of the self-righteous of Jesus' day. So if God is going to give them a chance not a second chance but a first chance to really understand His plan and purpose then who are we going to write off? I don't think we have the right unless we can find the scripture on it to write anybody off and there is one scripture that you wonder about about Judas but uh, that's another matter. That's, that's for God to determine in the very end. You know, God expects us to judge others without partiality as well. We read that we're not to judge people based on whether they're rich or whether they're poor. Let's notice that over in Exodus under the Old Covenant. And certainly this is a principle of God. This is part of the character of God is expressed in the words that we read there in the covenant. In the 23rd chapter of uh, Exodus and verse 1, he says, You shall not circulate a false report. Do not put your hand with the wicked to be an unrighteous witness. So don't follow the crowd as he shows here. You shall not follow a crowd to do evil. So just because everybody else is doing it, don't allow yourself to get drawn in to follow a crowd, to do evil, to be a false witness in some way, for example. Nor shall you testify in a dispute so as to turn aside after many to pervert justice. Now notice verse 3. You shall not show partiality to a poor man in his dispute. In other words, you are not to give favor to the poor man over that filthy rich individual that you just love to see coming down. You know, isn't that so true? Remember, here in this country we had some celebrities who 
paid for their daughters or children to get into prestigious universities on scholarships and different things. So they, they bribed somebody. It wasn't so much the scholarship, the money, but just be able to get in to these favorite universities and how the public loved to see those people fall. People love to see someone who is doing better than they are in certain physical ways. They love to see them come down. And yet God said that we are not to show partiality uh, to the poor man in his dispute. We're not to give him favor over the rich person. But notice verse 6. It says, You shall not pervert the judgment of your poor in his dispute. So neither are you to go to the other extreme and favor the rich or the one that can give the biggest bribe, obviously. Uh, Keep yourself far from a false matter. Do not kill the innocent and righteous, for I will not justify the wicked. And you shall take no bribe, for a bribe blinds and the discerning and perverts the words of the righteous. So we are not to take sides for the rich or for the poor, just because they're rich or because they're poor. We are to judge righteous judgment. Also, widows, fathers, and the stranger are highly regarded in the work of God or the word of God. And Deuteronomy, the first chapter, Deuteronomy 1, And verse 16, he says, Then I commanded your judges at that time. He's rehearsing what he had done back in the 18th chapter of Exodus. I commanded your judges at that time saying, Hear the cases between your brethren and judge righteously between a man and his brother or the stranger who is with him. You shall not show partiality in judgment you shall hear the small as well as the great. You shall not be afraid in any of man's presence, any man's presence, for the judgment is God's. So we don't show partiality in any, any case there at all. Also the 16th chapter, I'm sorry, the 10th chapter, verse 17. Deuteronomy 10 and verse 17. It says, For the Lord your God is a God of gods and Lord of lords, the great God, mighty and awesome, who shows no partiality nor takes a bribe. He administers justice for the fatherless and the widow and loves the stranger. We have strangers in our lands, don't we? We have many strangers here in the United States. Now, whether they got here legally or illegally, that's that's another matter, and that's not for you and me to worry about. But we should treat people with fairness, with kindness and with decency. And if they have difficult times speaking our language, we endure it, we we work with them, but we treat people with fairness. He says, minister justice to the fatherless and the widow uh, and the one who loves the stranger, giving him food and clothing. Therefore, love the stranger, for you are strangers in the land of Egypt. Yes, Our forefathers were not just strangers, they were slaves in the land of Egypt. So he says, you need to understand and apply the same thing that you wanted or your forefathers wanted. You should apply the same uh, means of kindness toward the stranger who may be in our land. In the 23rd chapter of Exodus again, uh, this is an interesting one that 
We are also not to show uh, deference when it comes to something that's happened. A, a person's animal has gone astray. Uh, notice it says here in verse 4, If you meet your enemy's ox, this is your enemy, not your friend, but your enemy. If you meet his ox or his donkey going astray, you shall surely bring it back to him again. Or verse 5, if you see the donkey of one who hates you lying under its burden, you shall, and you would refrain from helping it, you shall surely help him with it. So even if it's your enemy and you see that he needs help, especially whether it be an animal, but if, if he really needs help, God's way is to help him even if he's your enemy, even if he doesn't like you, even if he treats you miserably. If there's a time that he needs help, you go and you help him, at least offer to help him in that case. So God shows that we are to show impartiality in all of our dealings uh, with with everyone uh, that we deal with. Notice in Matthew 5, I won't turn there, verses 43 to 48 Jesus said that we are to love our enemies. He said under the, the old covenant that there were places as you shall, or it was said, it wasn't so much the old covenant, but the, the attitude that people had was that, that you should love your friends and, and hate your enemies. But he said, love your enemies, do good to them, pray for those who spitefully use you and persecute you. And he shows that our Father in Heaven has that attitude and approach. That's what we need to learn. I'd like to go over to the book of Jonah. Jonah is a very interesting case. And we're all very familiar with the subject of Jonah. I've read it probably many times. And in the reading of it, I don't think that I'm going to bring out anything that's all that remarkably new because you've read it so many times. But I want to remind you of what it says here. We're going to begin in Jonah 3 and verse 3. It says, Jonah arose and went to Nineveh, according to the word of the Lord. Now Nineveh was an exceedingly great city of three days' journey in extent. And Jonah began to enter the city on the first day's walk. And he cried out and said, Yet forty days, and Nineveh shall be thrown down. Now, he had just come out of the mouth of a fish for three days and three nights, and traveled there, and, you know, he didn't want to go there because this was an enemy of Israel. And, and he didn't want to warn them because he felt like, well, they, they may repent. And so that was his attitude. He didn't want them to repent. But by the time he gets there, he probably spewed out with uh, enough force, maybe sarcastically, maybe who knows exactly how he did it, but he, he gave the message. And what happened? The people repented. So the people of Nineveh, verse 5, believed God. They actually believed God, proclaiming a fast and put on sackcloth from the greatest to least of them. The word came to the king of Nineveh, and he rose from his throne and laid aside his robe, covered himself with sackcloth and satin ashes, and he caused it to be proclaimed and published throughout Nineveh by the decree of the king and his nobles, saying, Let neither man nor beast, herd nor flock, taste anything. Do not let them eat or drink water. But let man and beast be covered with sackcloth and cry mightily to God. So can you imagine here the dogs, cats, and they've, they've sewn sackcloth to them? Whether this is speaking in a figurative sense or literally, it would be quite, kind of humorous if, uh, if it was. But 
Nevertheless, it showed an attitude here. And remember that the Ninevites were the the predecessors of the Germans, modern-day Germans. And when the king gives a command, they fall in line, unlike some of us in Israel. And it says, Let many of the man nor beast be, uh, uh, let them be conveyed with uh, sackcloth. Verse 9, Who can tell if God will turn and relent and turn away from his fierce anger so that he may not perish? And God saw their works that they turned from their evil way, and God relented from the disaster that he had said he would bring upon them, and he did not do it. How many of the times do we read in history of a whole city or a nation repenting at the warning of God? This is given to us for a lesson that we can learn from it, a powerful lesson here. Now, these are the people that have fought with us in a couple world wars. The people who uh, took the house of Israel into captivity and were very brutal toward them. But they were instruments in the hand of God. God used them because he knew they would do the job in a way that we could learn a lesson from it. So God uses different people at different times for different purposes. Now, when this happened you would think that Jonah would be satisfied that somebody actually believes me. Because he obviously was a prophet before, and he probably wasn't doing too well at turning a lot of the people of his own land to God. But people finally listened to him, and you'd think he'd be pleased, but no. It displeased Jonah, chapter 4, verse 1, exceedingly. And he became angry. And he prayed to the Eternal and said, I, Eternal, who... Uh, was not this the word? Was not this what I said when I was still in my country? I Didn't I tell you that they would repent? Therefore, I fled previously to Tarshish. That's when he ended up in the belly of a fish. And uh, for I know that you are a gracious and merciful God, slow to anger and abundant in loving kindness, one who relents from doing harm. He knew the character of God. He knew the mind of God. He knew the name of God. And he knew that he would, in fact, that really goes back to some of the things he says right here, go right back to Exodus 34, the very name, the character of God. Therefore now, O Lord, verse 3, please take my life from me, for it's better for me to die than to live. What an interesting prophet he was. And we'll meet him someday. And uh, we sure hope that he's in the kingdom of God. We think he will be. We don't know what happened the rest of his life, but we, we hope that we meet him there. And we can have some good ribbing, I suppose, at that time. Uh, we can kind of slap him on the back and say, Remember Jonah? when? Yeah, and he'll slap us on the back and remind us of some stupid thing we've done. Because we all have, haven't we? You know, God created mankind with great variety. And and he loves people of all nations and nationalities. Notice how God loves the people of Germany, the ancient Assyrians, the forefathers of the modern-day Germans. Here Jonah is complaining. Verse 9, God said to Jonah, Is it right for you to be angry about the plant? Because remember, 
God gave him a plant that came up in one day and gave him some shade on a high hill where he was watching to see what happened. And then overnight, God created a big worm that ate the plant. And Jonah's all upset about the plant. And God says, is it right for you to be angry about the plant? And Jonah replies, it is right for me to be angry, even to death. Well, he hadn't quite learned yet. Verse 10, but the Eternal said, You have had pity on the plant for which you have not labored, nor made it grow, which came up in a night and perished in a night. And the the last verse of the book of Jonah is a powerful lesson. Should I not pity Nineveh, that great city in which are more than 120,000 persons who cannot discern between their right hand and their left, and also they have much livestock? They don't know my ways. There's so much they don't understand. They haven't been called to understand. They've been you know, given a message to repent, and they knew somewhat what sin was because they repented of sin, uh, at least some of their sins, and God relented. They weren't converted, but God said, should I not have pity on them? Should I not care for these individuals? You know, there's coming a time in Isaiah 19, verses 24 to 25, where it talks about Assyria and Egypt in Israel. Remember that it was Assyria who um, uh, took Israel into captivity. And Assyria brutally corrected us, our forefathers at that time, if we happen to be Israelitish. Not all of us are, but those who were our forefathers. But we've been pretty brutal to them in the end after World War I or World War II as well, although showed them kindness after the war was over. But we were slaves in Egypt, and Egypt and Israel have been at odds much of their history. And yet there in Isaiah 19, 24, and 25, it shows that there are going to be three nations all working together. And God gives, just read that for yourself. I won't take time right now for lack of time, but it's a beautiful, beautiful passage. In Acts, the 17th chapter, and verse 26, it says that God made of one blood all people on the face of the earth. We all come from Adam and Eve. We are all human beings. We all have the same potential of being born into the very family of God. We're familiar with Romans, the second chapter, Romans 2, and verse 28. He says, He is not a Jew who is one outwardly, nor is that circumcision which is outward in the flesh. But he is a Jew who is one inwardly. And remember that Jesus said, Salvation is of the Jews. He is one inwardly, and circumcision is that of the heart. In the spirit and not in the letter, whose praise is not from men, but from God. Also, Galatians, the third chapter beginning in verse uh, 26, Galatians 3. And we'll start in verse 26. For you are all sons of God through faith in Christ Jesus. Every one of you listening to this message out here who have come to repentance to accept Christ as your Savior and the children who are your children who have that opportunity as they grow up, every one of us 
uh, have the same opportunity. We are, as it says there, uh, you are all sons of God. Or as 2 Corinthians 6, I think it's verse 18, says, sons and daughters. So it doesn't leave out the, the ladies. You are all sons of God through faith in Christ Jesus. For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is neither male nor female. Now that doesn't mean that same-sex marriage is okay. It's not taking these words to an extreme. It doesn't deny the reality of what we are biologically. But... In terms of before God, standing before God, there's, there's no male or female in that sense. There's neither male nor female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. Now, does that mean that we do away with the patriarchal system, the husband being the head of the house? Of course not. We all have different roles to play in this life. He says, and if you are Christ, then are you Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promise. Heirs according to the promise. Remember the 8th chapter of the book of Romans, the 6th chapter, the 8th chapter, talking about how we are heirs of Christ, uh, heir, joint heirs with Christ. We're brothers and sisters of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, younger brothers and younger sisters, of course. This day, this last great day of the feast, demonstrates God's profound love for all men everywhere. What a wonderful thing that that is. How thankful we should be. Because if God only loves certain people, you know, some of us would be left out, wouldn't we? I don't know about you, but I certainly feel that way. Some of us would be left out. This is like winning the lottery to be called during this time when you look at the odds against us, and yet, for whatever reason, God did call us. But He's going to call all the rest of them, sometimes because they will come along faster. You know, He calls the weak of the world to confound the wise. So it's not because they're dumb or stupid or not, you know, smart, whatever. It, it has to do with God's purpose and His calling. And God knows that the great of the world, He's not calling now. He knows He will call them later on. This day demonstrates God's fairness, His impartiality. It's not about human righteousness, but about God's timing. He has a time for everyone. God's festivals, from Passover to the last great day, portray an incredible story, God's amazing plan for humanity. This day reminds us that there is hope for all those lost souls in the world, regardless of race, nationality, current uh, behavior, or current religion, due to Satan's deception, there is hope for all of those individuals. What an incredible time this day pictures.